Hey everyone, this podcast is with Steve Phillips, a Rockstar team member and investor who works and invests in the region east of Oshawa. As you'll hear, Steve started his investment journey in the Durham region and has since moved east to Brighton, Quincy West, Belleville, Prince Edward County, and Kingston. He's a wealth of information for investing in this region and is our boots on the ground for investing east of Oshawa. And he's got an awesome real estate story that we go through in this podcast. We feel grateful to work with so many different amazing people who are using real estate to live life on their own terms. Terms. I simply love real estate. There's something in it that seems to appeal to everyone. Buy and holds, rent to owns, student rentals, short-term rentals, vacation rentals, multi-units, adding additional units, development, joint venture partnership, condos, you name it. We know everyone has a different flavor of real estate that they like based on their own situation. That's why we teach 20 plus different investment classes for Rockstar and Circle members on all these different strategies. We have a buy and hold class, a rent to own class, a student rental class, short-term, mid-term, an Airbnb class, multi-unit apartment building class, legal second suite and garden suite class, infill development, forcing appreciation, joint venture classes, and so much more. I don't need to go through all of them. There's 20 plus of them. If you aren't a Rockstar Inner Circle member yet, what in the world are you waiting for? Go check out our website at rockstarinnercircle.com to learn more and download free books, reports, watch videos, read investor case studies of people that we work with that are using real estate to live life on their own terms and sign up for a free real estate investing class taught by Tom and Nick with open Q&A. That's rockstarinnercircle.com. Without further ado, Steve Phillips, everyone. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. I'm listening to a podcast a day, maybe two or three. Which, what are your favorite podcasts? So I'm, I like my, I like Rogan. Uh, I'm into Jordan Peterson a little bit right now. Oh, and like, and he's doing a lot of good interviews. So it I really find is. that in, impressive. Uh, Patrick Bet David, really yep. big fan of Patrick Bet David. I could listen to PBD podcast pretty much every day. Um, but he's yeah, a huge I, real estate guy. I didn't realize. Yeah, dude, he's in insurance, I think as like a basis, but I think he sells and coaches a lot of real estate people. Mm-hmm. So I think he just is kind of blending into both angles. But uh, but yeah, from like an entrepreneurial perspective, I find he has a lot of good takes. So yeah, I'm into that. I think, I think anybody who's taking um, a sensible approach to life, I'm willing to listen to right now. Yeah, searching for the truth. Give me more. Yeah, yeah exactly. Having truthful conversations. Yeah, insightful. People who have done things, like experience-wise, you know. Um, in the terms of like Patrick Bet David, he just took a company from nothing to exit hundreds of millions of dollars. So I think that if that person's speaking, I'm interested. I need to know more. I yeah. have to do that. Yeah. Yeah, these guys have legitimate careers outside of just podcasting. And- yeah, I think so. I think I'm more interested in people that are creating content from a place of experience. I think that sometimes content coming from just the purpose of you know marketing or media is good, but it's limiting, you know. But you know, at the same time, curiosity is interesting. So like people that are coming at it like yourself, like coming at it from a, a curiosity perspective of learning as you go. Wow. It's impressive. It's a great way. I'm too, I think, too embarrassed to do it that way because I think I would, it's, 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 um, it's a commitment to learn in front of other people. Learning out loud. Oh man, you gotta be brave to do that. Yeah. I, it's like, 
years ago, I lived in Costa Rica with my wife for like a year. And uh, we were out there and I wanted to learn how to surf. And so I'm talking to this guy that, you know, I'm getting, I go out into the ocean and the ocean keeps throwing me back, you know, over and over and over again. I can't even get past the surf, you know. And I come to the shore and there's a young guy, wetsuit, sitting on the side. And he's like, he was from Jersey and he surfed his whole life. And he goes, have you ever surfed before? I'm like, no, dude, never. And he's like, yeah, it shows. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry about that. And he, he goes, you know, this isn't the wave or this isn't the ocean to learn. Like, you're going to die. You should be careful. And that's fair. But at the same time, I learned the valuable lesson that like surfing is one of those examples where you can't fake it. You, you, you either are or you aren't. Mm. You know, you can't just sit there and be like, I'm a surfer. Go and everyone knows you're not, you know. And so there's something kind of uh, empowering about something like that. I kind of like that that whole mantra of like, you, you can't fake this. And you think podcasting's related to that? Like you can't fake it? Uh, I think you you either are good at things and you can learn to be better at things. But if you have no interest in things, you tend to not even pick it up in the first place, right? And so like... I don't know. I don't know if I've kind of ranted off and lost it, lost the plot. But I think like most of the time, I think podcasting is, is one of those skills that curiosity over um, can outperform, can outperform a lot of things. And then having a background of which you're coming from a place of a lot of knowledge combined with that curiosity seems to be the winning ticket for a lot of people. It just I think that's why Rogan's just the champ because he's so curious about so many different topics, but then he just brings so much experience in so many different areas of life, in martial arts, yeah. in comedy, in uh, the entertainment business. Yeah. And he's just a really cool, interesting guy with a lot of life experience that he can intertwine amidst all his curiosities. Yeah, and I think the, you're, you're bang on. And I think as you're saying that, I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, and he like supremely focused on each one of those things. So I think sometimes like a weakness for me is like I can get, when, when I was younger, I would get distracted by shiny things. And so in doing that, you know, it's hard to, to be good at things when you're always bouncing around and doing a lot of things, you know, and for real estate for me now, I've been in real estate almost 15 years. Um, it took a long time for me to come to grips with the fact that that's what I do. You know, I don't know if that's normal or not, but it, I, I always kind of was doing it and didn't really think of it as the thing that I do. And now at my age of, I just turned 40, I'm looking at it like, no, no, that's your thing now. Like, that's your thing. You got 30, 40 years of, of work and, and career and kind of getting better at a craft. What are you going to do for that time? I'm really comfortable now saying that it's real estate and I'm going to become the best at that I can be. And I think it's important to kind of, you know, commit something like that are you just now consciously putting your stake in the ground saying i'm going to be known for real estate this is my thing is that now just Dude, I, happening i think i just did that yeah no I think, <laughs> I think i think that's what just happened yeah no i i i so uh was there a small window in the back of your mind like before this let's say in the last decade we're like uh oh, maybe i'll switch to something else i think i always had these grandeur thoughts of like being an entrepreneur i've always wanted to be an entrepreneur always my whole life i've wanted to be an entrepreneur i just my both my parents were in corporate life and I knew that was never going to be for me just because I didn't like being told what to do with no control of altering the conversation. Like that just was never in it for me. Um, so I always kind of was like, no, like, I think that's the only thing I can do. When I was a little kid, like maybe seven or eight, yeah, I don't know what grade that would be. 
I had a teacher tell me one time and she was just like berating me for talking too much in class. She's like, Steven, I don't know what you're going to do, but you're going to sell something really well. <laughs> and, uh, and she, she followed that up by saying, I just hope it's something good. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, I just always kind of knew that was going to be my avenue. Um, but real estate really became a thing for me where, um, I did it and I've had just totally different reasons for doing it all the way through. Uh, I started at 23 working for my now father-in-law managing condominium corporations. And so I started doing that because that was the only thing I could do, right? I came out of school and it was like, there's a job there, do that. Um, and I learned so fast because I was in a very intimate situation, but I said, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, it's a very family business. And in no time I was managing 1200 doors, you know, wow. 10 or 15 corporations at any given time and really knowing nothing, right? Like I didn't know what to do. So I had to learn on the fly. And so it, it, it allowed That's me That's a big operation then. Yeah, man. Yeah, it was. And, and it, you know, only in hindsight, does it look like a big operation in the minute when you're sitting there, you're like, this is, this is chaos. Like this is, this is what it is, but it, it's just, it's just the nature of that business. It's, it's chaotic. It's managing condominium corporations is kind of a chaotic business. Um, just a lot of moving parts, a lot of legal things, a lot of corporate documents and annual general meetings and all those things. Right. And so learning all of that right away kind of forced me to, to figure things out and learn on my own and, and contact people that were smarter than me. That was kind of the first thing I did and started learning from lawyers and, and architects and engineers and, and just taking their time because they, they kind of had to talk to me because they were getting paid by the condo corps. So then it was able like an opportunity for me to sit there and be like, look, how do I do this? What is the condo act? What are these people talking about? And then they, they would teach it to me. Wow. And now an education, man. Yeah, it was great. I mean, now the, the, the industry's come a long way and now there's a lot of uh, structure just like real estate agents have to do and realtors have to do as far as like training and education and courses and programs. But 2004, there, there was really nothing. Like, and where was this? This would is we worked out of Markham and we covered pretty much the GTA from Mississauga to Oshawa, Ajax. Where did you grow up again? I grew up in Pickering. So I was born and raised in, well, born in Scarborough, raised in Pickering um, and uh, never really ventured too far out of that area for a long time. I was kind of an East End guy, uh, married my wife, who's from Vaughan and uh, italian yeah of course yeah uh, half and half right she's half irish half italian so oh same yeah it really yeah so yeah. you it's know interesting combination so you know how to duck and you know how to weave <laughs> i'm not much of a fight my last fight was in high school man how'd you do uh it was a 25 year old man that had kind of uh oh man that's not a high school fight uh no it wasn't that's like a guy my age yeah no yeah. that's not right so uh and he was really drunk and i just dodged a lot i did was du yeah, ducking, ducking and weaving, weaving. Yeah. i don't i don't know if i threw a single punch we just got out of there <laughs> yeah yeah so um that's good that's good that that Got, got you ready for your, uh, your relationship, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, for me, it's, it was, um, we worked in the GTA area and so you got to see a lot of different, just a lot of different things, different people, different cultures, different setups. Um, managing a townhome corporation in Scarborough is not the same as managing a, you know, small retail industrial building in Mississauga. Like those two things are lifetimes apart. Um, we did an old age and we managed an old age home in Durham area that had like, you know, government assisted seniors that were on the end of their, end of their years and, and limited budgets and kind of watching 
that whole process was really interesting. You learn so much from seeing the different demographics, renters, and just so much about life too, and how yeah. people live and stages of life and what, what their needs are. And So like going through those condo corps, a lot of those people were, were owners, right? There were some that were renters. Um, the building with the seniors were renters. Um, but you had to, you had to learn how to talk to people with respect. Nobody calls you for like, it's a good day. Nobody calls you just to say hello. So that business teaches you a lot just in that first early years. Like I learned a lot about real estate, just learning like, what is it that this person's trying to accomplish? What are they calling me for? Why are they just screaming at me? And you know, I, I got really good at being a, you know, too young to realize what I was doing. Just when somebody starts screaming at you, just taking a beat and be like, Hey, how are you? How's your day going? Mm -hmm. It would disarm people and yeah. kind of bring things back, you know, bring the humanity back. I think so. Conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, so I managed property for many, many years, learning a lot of those things and then morphed into real estate because I, I'm a little older than you. So it's like, I was watching at 26, Right. I was watching uh, the flipping shows and I got really hooked on Armando Montalongo. Okay. I'm not sure who that is. I know. I like nobody, the name though. Nobody does. But he was uh, he was a flipping guy on one of the HGTV shows in San Antonio. And uh, I just saw this like business model where like this guy just went and looked at houses all day and he would buy some and he'd fix them and he'd sell them. I'm like, that's a business. Like, all right, I'm into that. Yeah. You know? Um, but then when I went out to my like family or people that I knew, I'm like, this is what I want to do at the time. It's like, that's not a thing. Like you got to go be a realtor. That's how you get into real estate. So I'm like, okay. So I went and did that. Got my real estate license. Quickly learned that that wasn't really the thing I wanted to do. Right. Like I didn't really want to be a realtor. I just wanted to do this thing. So I think for a lot of my career, it's kind of been struggling to figure out my niche in real estate i've sold condos I've, I've worked in condos i've lived in condos so that felt like the first progression i got into um and then uh morphed into um, my wife and i like i said we, we moved to costa rica and i was about 27 ish uh we had a pre-construction condo that we had bought and the project got delayed for in the end six years oh when I went in on the project, I was cocky and arrogant and I thought I knew so much, you know, I'd managed these things. I had been in real estate. I was now selling condos, downtown pre-construction. I was, I was so smart and, uh, always critical last words, right? I was so smart. And at the time I got into a project that eventually turned into a really, really good project. What I didn't understand at the time was how important valuable time was. So I gave my deposit on a pre-construction project, but I didn't have enough capital to make that investment educated. Like that wasn't a smart investment. It was just like, I put my money there and I was betting, I was gambling. Um, and the gamble in the end worked out, but it just had this time delay of six years, right? And in that whole time, you're waiting for a mortgage. You're waiting to take and be in a position where you can accept this thing and, and close on it. And at the exact same time, everyone you grew up with watched you make this decision that doesn't fit the norm. And so every party you go to, every time you go to a, an event, everyone's like, hey, how's that condo? It sucks, yeah, yeah, it didn't go well. Hey, I heard this about that condo. Yeah, it's bad, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it just got to be a lot, lot of negativity. Was that your first investment? It was my first investment in property. Oh, wow, yeah, Jeez. yeah, I think it, it was, uh, 
yeah, it was one of those those things where I I had saved a bunch of money and I I pulled the trigger and went after and speculated and didn't really understand what the difference was between speculating and investing and just sort of went what after. What a wild first investment to make. Yeah. Did you own your own home here first? Like, did you? Oh, I didn't do it in Costa Rica. To be clear, the the reason I landed in Costa Rica was because of that investment. Oh, it was the investment was here. Yeah, was oh, I here. thought the condo no, was in Costa Rica. No, sir. Like, oh, that's here pretty ballsy, in Ontario. Man. No, no, no. That would be a crazy story. No, <laughs> what happened is I made a decision ah, here geez. in Ontario. Um, and then the negativity of the, of the bad decision kind of piled up for a couple of years. And it led me to look for alternative things to do. Like, what do I really want to do? And my wife was in the same mindset. And so we just, we just moved to Costa Rica. So wow. that was easy to kind of disconnect. And what was the plan when you went down there? Uh, there wasn't a plan. There was a, I need to be somewhere that isn't here. And we had gone to Costa Rica in April with some friends and done a, done a 10, 10 day stay, seen pretty much the entire province or country because we had, we had landed in there and it looked like it was an easy drive to get around. So we just drove around and uh, saw the whole thing and loved the people, loved the place, thought it was a great place to be. Came home. I was at a gas, uh, gas station in the middle of the night as we got off the flight, pumping gas into my car. The guy beside me starts kicking the gas pump and just beating it up. I don't know why it's two in the morning. I just didn't pump wasn't working i literally looked in my vehicle told my wife I'm like we're out of here these people are crazy <laughs> that's the last story. that was it i'm out of here it's the last story. yeah i'm like this is it They're, this is nuts and uh so yeah so in the next i don't know a couple of weeks month we sold all our stuff and uh had this condo pending so i had an investment that was coming um so yeah so we just jumped we just jumped into it and got out there and, and lived there for about a year um how did you make it work? Just by selling everything, you built up some savings. Had built up a lot of equity. Were you planning like on cash. working down there? Yeah, so we'd built up a lot of cash just by selling a lot of property. Mm. Um, and I uh, figured I would figure it out. You know, just with that kind of mindset, I would figure it out. Got into um, real estate down there. The crazy part is when we pulled that trigger, it was right after the Great Recession. So it was like 2010 timeframe. They had really taken it hard. A lot of their investors were American. So there's half built projects everywhere. It was really decimated real estate market, um, which again, just like teaching you as you go, like that whole, I guess that would be like the overarching ethos of, of my working career. It's like I figure things out as I go uh, and have figured things out as I go. And so when I got into that market, looking at this, just uh, destruction was what it really was. It was destruction at the time. And uh, talking to a nice guy that I met, Italian guy who was a realtor there. And when I explained what I had come from, this crazy real estate market of pre-construction condos where like people are buying 30 at a time and this thing's madness. And, and I'll never forget his voice and he said to me, Steve, why did you move here? Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing here? Go back. And you're like, yeah, okay. And then actually... I didn't really realize that uh, we came home for rainy season, my wife and I, and we lived in Ottawa for three, four months while we were waiting through the summer to go back down. And she got pregnant with my wife, with my daughter. And that was it. We never really left. We came and stayed here. And then I had to make real estate work again and take another crack at it. We closed on the condo. The irony of the whole story is I had a two bedroom condo I didn't need. Once my wife was pregnant, we closed one month before my daughter was born where I needed the second bedroom oh, nice. and a place to live. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like, um, I'm a big believer. God gives you kind of what you need when you need it. And that was a big thing for me. Were you upset about not going back to Costa Rica or that had served its purpose? It gave you some time to reflect and look at your situation from the outside in. 
I think I'm still upset about yeah. not going back to Costa Rica. What was, what was the lifestyle like back then? So the market was decimated down there, but just what did you do for the year? Yeah, so we uh, we opened, uh, I was there for about three months, two and a half months, and got bored really quick. Um, had seen a lot of things, I could been around and seen stuff, but was just like entrepreneurial itch was going. Um, just for the purpose of doing stuff because you needed to put your mind to something to build something or just because you wanted more opportunity to raise your quality of life like why no it was just strictly i was it's funny because now i'm looking back at it's 13 12 13 years later like i don't know i was just a, i was just a kid i was just i was just foolish and i was like well, i can do anything what do you mean? Like, I can figure this out. And so, yeah, there was really no plan to that. Like, as you're saying, and I'm listening, and I'm like, no, like I was on a beach every day trying to learn how to surf. We'd go out and cruise around. I'd get groceries. I'd make dinner. I'd watch sunsets. Doesn't that was, sound so bad. Oh, it was a little beautiful. Yeah. And then eventually there just got to be part, like, there's got to be something else I can do. Can I do something else while I'm here? And then you're watching and taking in things. And anyways, there was a, there was a small um, commercial building that was vacant. And so I went and talked to the landlord, figured out a rent, which was cheap at the time. Uh, and we opened a little wrap shop, like essentially ripped off Pita Pit. I don't know if I can say that, but <laughs> I, I just took your idea. It was a great idea. <laughs> there was a lot of other people doing things down there that were already being established. So the American barbecue and Italian guys making pizza and like, but there was no quick wrap chicken and lettuce and valuable kind of sustenance that you can just grab and go. And so we were just up from the surf spot. Um, again, the location was really good, so it made sense. We hired uh, some locals to make chicken on a barbecue out front and we called it, you know, wrap it up and we put a wrap on it and stir for special and out the door and kind of just hung around. And Oh, wow. How was it? How had the business too? I mean, it was break even. Like it was like a oh, fun life. It's like, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, do I have enough to eat? Yeah, Did I make it. enough to pay my bills, pay my employee, make my stuff? You know, it wasn't about making money, it was sustenance. Yeah, something to do. Yeah, and and at the same time, you know, can you do that? Like, could you go to a foreign country with no knowledge, not speaking Spanish, not understanding a thing about the municipalities or the governments or any other stuff and, and start from nothing? You know, and so that was fun. It was a process and we got through it and we did it. And so the, the victory wasn't the money on that side. It was the knowledge. I think a lot of that has got to be the, the, the case. Like, what did you learn from the situation? There's not really any failures. It's just learning and moving. And, and so, yeah, so that was, that was kind of how that part of that life went is just a learning process and, and, and then learning and appreciating where you come from and what you have. And, uh, yeah, you need that outside perspective, man. I think so. Otherwise, it's like, it's the air you breathe. You just don't know. You don't know what the culture is back home. You don't know what the opportunities are. You don't know what's good, what's bad until you go somewhere else and you look back in. Yeah, yeah. And you, you take things for granted and or um, you don't see opportunities, right? Like, I think the biggest thing is you just don't see opportunities. Like, in this version of my real estate career, um, I go into a city and even though I haven't been there my entire life, I think that's my advantage because I come into the market with eyes from different places and I start consuming things and looking and feeling and vibing and trying to feel out what's here and what's not here. And then you dive into the details and you dive in and do your homework, right? And you spend, I, I'd like to spend four or five, six months just in the details and walking it and living it and seeing it. And then I'll take it to my clients. But at this point, you know, um, I don't want to limit myself by saying I've always lived here. 
I think that's probably one of the biggest turnoffs I've had about being a realtor is I never wanted to be isolated to just one place. I like to move. I like to keep moving. I like to keep doing things. Yeah. So how do you balance that with, uh, with being kind of stuck in one location or being an area expert in one location? How do you balance that? I'm open to new markets and I learn very fast and I have put my attention on a thesis and I'd like to keep my thesis kind of moving and evolving. And so like, if I look at it, I look at Ontario as a whole and I look at, you know, all the general realtor things like immigration and, and, uh, the fact that we're landlocked by a, a body of water to our South and nobody really lives anything more than 45 minutes North of the 401. And you kind of have these like sprawls that pop up and like, you just learn the province as a whole. And so, um, yeah, I think I manage it by just having a, an ability to go macro to micro and just keep, uh, delving in and dropping in where I need to drop in. So your overall thesis is that Ontario is a good place to invest in real estate. My overall thesis is that the only thing that doesn't make sense building anymore um, are 45 by 120 foot lots with houses under 2000 square feet. They can't build those anymore. The, the, the numbers don't work for a developer to build that anymore. So if that's the case, you know, I mean, it can work. Theoretically, it can work, but you got to pay a million five for the house or a million three for the house or something like that. You get these bungalows that are uh, downsizer friendly, let's just say. But for the most part, those are usually compacted into smaller lots, right? So the house might work, but the lot doesn't work. And the lot might work, but the house is bigger. Like it's hard to find that that niche of housing. Um, and so my overall thesis is that that's a limited supply and um, bringing new inventory to the market based on the government restrictions seems very challenging and difficult for many people. So the only thing that you can do when you get creative, and I, I'm a believer in creative real estate, um, the only thing you can do when you get creative is to start taking what you already have and rework it and reconfigure it and make it work so that it, it's something new within its original mold. And and that's that's essentially been what I kind of work off of. It's what I uh, explain to a lot of my clients and it's, it's how I kind of work to get them to a new solution. Okay, so you come back from Costa Rica, you're back into selling real estate. How does your journey evolve in all the ways that it did since then? So I spend the, the summer in Ottawa um, hanging out where I find out my wife is pregnant. I lived in a house that faced the canal. And so I would spend pretty much all my day, like my entire day, bike riding up and down the canal. Not the entire day, that's a lie. But I worked night work. So I would work in restaurants and stuff because I was just picking up, just picking up work because I was planning on going home. Like I was going back to Costa Rica. So I was just like, fill a job, find something to do that pays me for a bit. And so, um, you know, working restaurants is easy for me. That's kind of, my youth was spent doing that stuff. So um, yeah, so I just moved into youth, into uh, restaurants and working in a restaurant, but it allowed me to have these days where it's like, what am I going to do? So I would bike ride up and down the canal and just kind of get some work in. Um, and I picked up a copy of rich dad, poor dad on MP3 <laughs> on a, on a, this weird thing that I could listen to this book only, you know, different times. Yeah. It was different right. times. Um, yeah. And anyways, I just obsessively listened to it over and over and over and over and over and over again for months and months and months. And then it was like, oh, like an aha moment, like, oh, I can do real estate and do this. Like I can figure out a way to help people who want to do investment work. Like that's my niche. Okay. That's good. How do I find that? Uh, that drove me back into the marketplace, go find somebody who, who does that and learn from them. I went and found some great mentors. 
um, harassed them until they would let me work with them. And then I spent... That's what I did to get here. Yeah, that's what, I think that's what anybody, if you're young, if you're out there and you're youthful and you're ambitious of trying to learn, then that's what you have to do. You just have to kind of value proposition somebody who knows what they're doing as to why you can help them and 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 then be consistent and prove that you're willing to do that. And so that's what I did. And then they, they taught me a lot. I worked around a lot of people that taught me a lot in a very condensed... I, I think that's also like a... Uh, a, a key is to find the people who are doing better than you or understand things better than you and then just consistently ask good questions until you can learn and so that's what I did uh, they taught me a lot about duplex conversions at the time 2014 2015 uh, Oshawa went through a bit of a boom with duplex conversions um, we I got really into it really into it learned as much as I could figured out you know what to look for how to look for them how to convert them what is the bylaws? What's the Ontario building code? Like started learning all of those things really quick. Uh, and then that brought me into this kind of niche. At what point did you start working with other investors to help them do the same thing? Again, I, I, within six months to a year of doing it myself, I was already a licensed realtor. I had been one for a while. Mm-hmm. So it was just like a blending of. So it was natural to start working with other investors. I think so. Yeah. It just became like, it's not a, it's, it's, it's a talent that a lot of people like converting property and flipping property. I, I think a lot of the times when I talk to real estate uh, investors or new real estate investors, I should say, they make it out like it's so, not, they don't always, but some do, let's not generalize, but some do make it out like that's the easy thing to do. Just like flipping houses is easy. Like I don't want to do my job anymore. I want to just flip houses. It's easy. I thought that, right? Like I was watching some guy on TV and I'm like, that's easy. Mm-hmm. When I got it takes into 22 it, minutes. No oh my gosh. Yeah. Once I got into it and I started digging, Digging into like, you know, learning from people that are flipping 30, 40 houses a year or, or do this for sustenance, like how to live and how to make income off of it. Like you figure out real quick, this is not easy. This mm. is a very innate skill. Like you've learned something, you've done something, you've got systems, you've got processes, you understand a lot. Um, and so, yeah. So as soon as I could unlock that and figure out a lot of those things and then translate it into how to do it for clients and kind of help them through it. So were you primarily flipping? Were you doing buy and holds? I think duplex conversions were the were the thing at the time. Were um, you holding on to them after? And we try, yeah, like money? we would hold on to some of them. Again, in youthful knowledge, it's it's so hard to have hindsight and look back at what they're worth today compared to then. But there was a lot of tempting things. You know, buy them three forty, do a little bit of work, sell them for five fifty. That was easy. That made a lot of sense. And so we would do those things in hindsight, like, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? Like, mm. hold on to every property, right? Yeah. I was actually just golfing with my partner at the time just the last week. And he's like, man, you know what? We made a mistake. I'm like, what? He's like, we sold everything that we should have held on to. And I'm like, yeah, I know. That's I've never, everybody ever, says that. <laughs> ever met a real estate investor who didn't regret selling a property ever, unless they were selling the property to get out of a relationship or a joint venture partnership they were no longer interested in being in. I just haven't met the person that's like, I'm glad I sold that property. Yeah, I, I would agree to those statements. I think that's... It's more so selling the relationship. Yeah, I that's think so. That's the only times I've heard it, personally. I mean, I'm sure there's times where investors listening to this, they've offloaded something, flipped it into their personal home, or I don't know, done something. I think that... Um I think you make a good point in saying like the relationship, like how did you get to those houses? A lot of those houses were JV deals. A lot of those things are partnerships and you're, you're working with other people. And you know, in this version of me right now, I don't really want to do that too much anymore. I'm not into that. I'm not looking to raise capital. I'm not looking to manage people's, you know, investments in that sense. I'd rather be a service provider to them. 
So what's changed? Why has your mentality changed around that? Just experience, just time, just like you say, relationships, some work, some don't. Um, just dealing with all the headaches and yeah, you know, just knowing what it comes with, right? I, there's a lot of brilliant people that I know that are JV partners and they do amazing things. And just in my own experience, I've enjoyed servicing people better than partnering with them. And so it's kind of just changed my opinion that way. So a lot of people want to do joint venture partnerships, especially if they're strapped on resources. So how did you do it? How were you able to pull off all these different partnerships and stuff? Were you part of different real estate groups? Were you just doing your own marketing, friends, family? Yeah, real estate groups. And I, I think you're just, you're talking to people, right? It's constantly talking to people and just trying to work towards the same goals and the same processes. Were people more so attracted to you or were you going out there in search of people? Or it just kind of naturally happened as you evolved and were surrounded by real estate. I would say the latter. Yeah, I'd say the latter. I think I think people naturally just know what you're up to and they kind of ask questions and that kind of helps. And I think generally speaking, the the, the ma vast majority of people that are retail real estate investors, um, they've got time constraints. The vast majority of them have time constraints. And so that's why JV partnerships agree for the active partner. That's why they exist because they're willing to sacrifice those time constraints and they're willing to commit. And the other side just can't. And in this version of me now looking at it, you know, I think that uh, a lot of the times when I talk to these real estate investors that, that have time constraints, it's like, yeah, you should put more focus into what pays you month over month. What's your business? What's your job? What's your thing? Like, you should put more focus into that. Um, and then find ways to leverage your time however you can. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to give up your equity, but if it does, that makes sense for you, then do that. But I, my service that I'm providing to clients is trying to help them so that if they don't want to give up their equity, they don't have to. Um, a lot of the times it's just knowledge, knowledge and, and experience and so how is that? So, go. so you think those time constraints that are limiting people from doing it themselves, uh, what are you suggesting to them instead? Power teams, right? Like having a really solid power team, having people on the boots on the ground saves a lot of time. Um, having so, people around you that can, can guide you through the processors save you a lot of time. So still investing 100% for yourself, keeping the whole deal, but having a really good property manager, a really good tenant placement person. I really, that's where all the, that's, that is the trick. That is the trick. If you can't go 100% all into it, you need a power team. I think the JV guys that I've met in my career are fantastic people. Like they are very, very good at what they do and they deserve to be part of all of the transactions they're in because they are working way harder than you think they are. Like they are working extremely hard to keep those deals going and move everything forward. And they're the buffer between headaches and you, right? That's their role. And that makes a lot of sense. There's just a lot of people that I know and have met over time that they have a rub with that. Like they don't want to give up their 50% equity and, and they just exist. It's just a market segment that exists. And so as a realtor working, I just am trying to alleviate and, and service that part of the market. And, and that's where I help them. Now I work for syndicates too. I help people that are on the active side, I help them with property. But again, it's, it, it's not for me to come in and be like, hey, I'll be your partner. That's not for me anymore. That's that's the thing that I've removed from my business. It's like, hey, we should be 50-50 on this. Mm, not for me, not anymore. Mm. Do you think that people generally undervalue the expertise and management aspect of like what an active joint venture partner is bringing to the table? And, and more so focus on like, look, I'm providing the money, I'm getting the mortgage, that's the most valuable part of this deal. <laughs> Do you think that's heavily overvalued? What's your just honest here's opinion? Here's my example to that. Here's my Here's what I would say to that. 
every Sunday at a major, when there's a major golf tournament on, I sit on the couch, I have my family over, I'm talking to my father-in-law, and we're watching these professional golfers play golf. And we can criticize and sit on the couch and we each shoot in the high, you know, mid nineties, high nineties on good days on good courses. Yeah. And we criticize drives and we criticize chips <laughs> yeah. and we criticize Classic putts, fans. <laughs> right? Putts. And then, and then we sit there and we have opinions, but we haven't put in the hours to be the golfer who can hit out of 18 holes, 12 amazing drives. We aren't the guy who can sit there and make 15 amazing putts. Mm-hmm. We're not that guy. Mm-hmm. We have no business commenting on how it got to the, be the point. You missed one, you missed one, right? I think that in that analogy, the effort and time and energy it takes to be the 88th ranked PGA golfer is 10 to 30X the best amateur golfer at your golf course. Mm-hmm. And and that is that is a that's a valuable thing to be appreciative of. That's a lot of effort and energy just to get to that level. I think that if somebody has committed themselves to being an active partner and JV partner and is doing great at it, uh, they've put in time. They just couldn't be that person without it. It's just impossible. I think it's just like a human bias that we overvalue money over time in every area. Like we all do it with our own decisions. We're doing $10 tasks yeah. that we could easily outsource or, you know, just get rid of or delegate. And it's just a hard thing to get over. We just don't value that time. And I think it's the same thing with like those years of experience where people just don't value the amount of effort and the amount of classes, the amount of podcasts, the amount of deals, the amount of mistakes somebody's made. Dude, the mistakes. I think the mistakes is the first thing. Like you can't value about it. There's a great Jim Rohn line, right? Like in, and Jim Rohn, I don't know if you've ever, yeah, but just, yeah. of course you have. Uh, Jim Rohn, when he says, we don't listen to failures, right? Is that Jim Rohn or is that Zig Ziglar? One of the two. They don't give presentations, you know? We, they should. We should pay the failures to yeah. come up and talk, right? And yet we don't, but there's so much, you know, Bill, you had everything going for you and you messed it all up. How'd you do it, right? Like yeah. there's something about it. The failure... Um, the failure that real estate, active real estate investor partners have made has probably made them so strong that you kind of, you want those people on your side you want them to know how, what mistake they made. That's what you're really paying them for is their mistakes. So I think, um, yeah, I think that people undervalue that. I think that I also think that there's like, you know, money's <laughs> investors are putting a lot of their energy and faith into that investment. So they've put their money aside and having empathy for them and understanding that that's their family's life savings or that's the that's the wealth creation that they're trying to pay their kids with like there's a lot of weight into where that money comes from and so being able to respect that and and protect that is also very important and should be held up because that gets undervalued on the other side as well mm-hmm. i would say like the con- the contrarian approach is that like sometimes i meet at jv partners or active partners and sometimes they can lose perspective of that as well. Um, mm, that is true because that that accumulation of money and savings is also a representation of the time that yeah. it took to earn all that money. And faith, right? Like they've got faith in you. They've got faith and and they're 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 in it with you. And so that's yeah, all of those things kind of work together and 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 create something good. But do you think for more complex deals, maybe then it's more worth having uh, someone as a partner who's an active investor? Like, let's say you're doing a single family home to a triplex conversion, and this is something they have experience with, 
and they have those time constraints in their life or they're just not making the time for it. I, then does it make more it's, sense? It's one of the, it depends questions, right? Like it depends, it depends a lot on who the person is and what their skill sets are. Like for me, when I start talking to a new client or we're doing discovery calls, I always want to know what they do. Like, what do you do? And I don't want to know what they do necessarily for, for, um, personal gain. Like I don't, I'm not trying to figure out like, Oh, that guy makes a lot of money. No, like I'm asking, cause I want to know what your skill set is. If you're in it and, and you're a, you're a, you're a project manager in an it company, I know what your skill set is. I know you're very organized. I know what you like. I know your systems. I know what you're good at. There are certain skill sets that are going to work really well transitioning in. One of the greatest people I've learned from spent many, many years as a chef, as a, as a, as a culinary person. He does exceptionally well in real estate because there's a process and there's a system and there's a, there's a beginning and there's an end. And each project has a, 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 a and there's high pressure, there's deadlines, yeah. there's stress, yeah. there's so team members. He does amazing because he's got that background. So understanding where people are coming from as far as their job goes, it depends. Sometimes people are built a certain way or have certain attributes that, that is going to work really well to a triplex conversion. It's not brain surgery. Like we can do these things. I think fear gets in the way for most people. You can learn it. It's, do you want to learn it? Do you want to do those things? If you don't, then JV partner. But if you do and you want to take the time and learn it, it's not incredibly difficult. It's it's just going to be time consuming, and it's gonna it's gonna have. You have to accept that you're going to have failures, and you have mm -hmm. to work around those things. And but some people have just natural attributes in their business and the, and where they come from that that's okay. Okay. So how has your own investing and business with your, with your realtor side evolved over the years from doing those duplex conversions? Like what areas were you doing them now? Where are you at? What's the next stage of the journey here? Started in Durham, ended, uh, 2016, 2017 exited out of Durham and went, and we moved to my family and I moved to a place called Brighton. Uh, Sorry. What comprises the Durham region? Exactly. What yeah, cities? So Pickering would be the start because that's a Scarborough border. And then you move into Ajax, Whitby, Oshawa. And in recent years, Clarington has added to that area. So you've got Bowmanville and Newcastle and things like that. So is that considered part of the GTA? Yeah, I believe so. I think, I think anything around that golden horseshoe area is definitely on there. 407 reaches from one end of Clarington and touches all the way down to where we are here today. Um, that whole span is accessible to the greater Toronto area. Um, I would put it in the same category. It's like, does new market count? Probably, right? Mm. It's close. It's kind of in that same description. So I think it would be comparable. Comparable. Uh, the only other advantage is, is that you're right down the 401 and there's a go line. So as soon as those two things implement, and that's again, why does new market count? Well, it's got a lot of those things, right? So, you know, it's accessible to the great. Yeah, there's a big area. sprawl happening. Like I grew been up in, happening. Yeah, yeah, been happening. Um, like I grew up in Brampton, and now Brampton to me it just feels like a suburb of Toronto. Like it's just a matter of time before it's it's Toronto, and this is you know Brampton. Like just like in LA, all these different towns and cities amalgamated, like Long Beach and Compton and all these places. It's just all LA. Yeah, you know, that's what it feels like to me from the outside looking in. Yeah, yeah. I think when you're in there, you were from there. It'll always be Brampton. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. You identify with the community. There's people in Brampton that before Bramley and Brampton, uh, kind of, uh, combined and became Brampton. Yeah. They were like, Oh, I'm from Bramley. Yeah. But now that's, no, that's a neighborhood in Brampton. What are you talking about? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I think that's a natural progression. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so Durham I, region, 
Awards. And then I jump uh, 2016, 2017. My family, we moved to a place called Brighton, which is along the 401, just outside Coburg, just past Coburg and Colburn. Uh, stayed there for a couple of years. And then we got into Prince Edward County. I had never been to Prince Edward County before. Um, always went to Muskoka or the Kawarthas as a kid for cottages and stuff. So once we got out there, it was like a whole new world to discover. Um, What's it like there? How does it compare it to the to Muskoka or the Kawarthas? Um, the body of water tends to be Lake Ontario, right? Like sandbanks and a lot of the areas picked in in those areas, they, they tend to be mostly attached. It, it, it's mostly Lake Ontario as your water frontage. So if you, you can get a, you can get confused and look there and feel like you're at an ocean. It's very open and beautiful and you know, it's Lake Ontario and you can actually swim in that lake. So it's nice that way. Um, there's Is the little, water cleaner up that ways. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm not an expert on yeah. that stuff, but I would say it looks a lot cleaner. Yeah. I let my kids swim in it. I don't know if I do. Do they have like the uh, E. coli warnings and stuff sometimes up there? I would imagine. Yeah. I'm not, I haven't seen any, but yeah, I'd imagine. Okay. I'm sure it's cleaner it's than a, the Toronto it's, water. It, yeah. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. much cleaner. Um, but yeah, it, in the way that it varies is just, it's, it's a, it's a very much condensed area um in muskoka you can just keep driving north and you'll drive through muskoka and just keep going you know you miss it because you hit algonquin right <laughs> whereas like the county is you come off the 401 you go south you loop back up and you come back north it's a big u mm. and so it's it's a smaller condensed area in that sense i mean it's huge it takes you an hour an hour and a half to get from one like kitty corner running from one side to the other. Um, there's not a lot of uh, abilities to cut out traffic, right? Like roads, it's country roads. So. And you're living there year round? Yeah, live there year round. The goal is to be seasonal, <laughs> be a seasonal resident, like to spend a, a bit of the wintry months down down in South. My dad lives in Mexico. So we'd, uh, we'd like to start to explore and living down there for a few months a year, but. How old are your kids? You mentioned the one daughter. I have a daughter 11 and my son turns eight in four weeks. Okay. So how are you thinking about uh, the snowbird lifestyle with kids in tow? I think COVID uh, exposed a lot of things and showed that schooling is possible we were showed that where we were you know exposed to a, a version of school where there's a, a a digital virtual aspect that can be worked into any school program and uh we're open to it and so i don't have the answers to be honest with you i i'm i'm aiming towards that as a solution and um have buy-in from my kids who want the same thing. And so we'll make it work. And there's a lot of examples of how it works. And so I, I think that that question, you know, five years ago came with limitations. I think now I sit in a spot where it seems like it's reasonable. Like it seems like there's a solution there. I just got to figure, figure it, out. it out. So what's the lifestyle like in Prince Edward County? It's, it's very laid back. Beautiful yeah, it's laid a back. tourist town. Yeah, it seems like an amazing spot to live. It is, yeah. It's a tourist town. There's a lot of great people there. Um, lots of vineyards. You're looking at, you know, 40 plus distilleries breweries and vineyards it's it's the mini niagara sometimes people call it don't tell the people in the county that that's not acceptable but uh it is a place that has those kind of vibes to it um you come into town and it, it feels like a, a summer vacation it just feels like a summer vacation my, my wife and daughter and i my son was at a tfc game with his grandfather on sunday saturday so he wasn't with us but uh we were out at the beach hanging out for the day and it's 
it's a vibe. It's a real nice place to be. And you can go grab a drink afterwards and a dinner and it's, it's nice. It's yeah. Nice. Yeah. It seems nice. Yeah. So then, uh, what, how has the investing changed in this region? Like how has this whole market changed from maybe the last 10, 15 years of you experiencing this East side of Toronto to, to up North? I don't even know what you would call where you're at now, Prince Edward County. Like, yeah. So like, so basically it's a 401 trunk line, right? So where we're focusing is, is in a specific range between Port Hope and, you know, essentially the, the, the 416 that goes to Ottawa. And again, Ottawa being another dominant market that's got a lot of bullish features to it and a lot of expansion going on and they're expanding down and, and exp, you know, coming into this area as well. Um, so you're experiencing overspill of population by both and investment interest on either end. Yes. I think Toronto investors, predominantly my clients are coming from Toronto and or Ottawa and they're they're reaching out because those two markets have gone up in value so high that they are looking for either exposure into cash flow generating markets such as Belleville or Quinney West um, and then are looking for hedge markets like Kingston, which is a larger population. Belleville, Quinney West are all under 60,000 populations. Kingston is up around you know, 150, 160,000 people. Like there's a bigger market there. This could be more. Uh, it's just one of those things where there's 25,000 plus students in Kingston. So if you're coming from Ottawa, the smaller market would be Kingston. I, I tend to use the analogy for like Toronto investors. It's like if you were investing in Oshawa, consider it the same as an Ottawa investor investing in Kingston. Mm -hmm. It's very similar in that nature. And as a Toronto investor investing in Kingston, just it's a different Oshawa, right? It's just got different things about it. And it's very much population uh, comparable. And there's a university there and a college and government jobs and a lot of those type of things. So it tends to be a market like that. So we are looking um, uh, at, at explaining and, and helping people see that there's a there's a nice blend that has to occur in your portfolio in which you you have some exposure to cash flow generating properties in the smaller markets and then you've got some really good um, potential upside on appreciation and plays like that in markets like Kingston and Ottawa and things like that. Uh, I think that the strategy again going back to that what is my thesis that still applies no matter what market I go into right like I, I think that it's uh, prime real estate is the best, obviously. So get as close to the source of prime real estate as you can. Where's like the most heavily trafficked areas and let's get in there. And um, I've really gotten big into Ricardo's law of rent and, and, and there's some old economist stuff built into that of just based on like location, like how does things survive in downturns? You know, you need to be prime real estate. There's a reason prime real estate always is in demand. It's, it's prime. And so- uh, making, What is that Ricardo's law of rent? So, and who's Ricardo? Yeah, so he was an economist in the turn of the 19th century, I believe. Um, the idea is, is that, you know, depending on the location, you can eliminate, you know, features uh, within it as far as labor is concerned and, and product is concerned, but that actual location is is what causes this underlining rent that can never be uh, worked out of the equation. So the best way I can explain it is I'm not an economist, but I can say it in this way. They, they do a they did this um, test or this uh, the theory. And so in which case they give all of these people in London at the turn of the century a newspaper. It's all the exact same newspaper and they're all going to get paid based on how many newspapers get sold. And so everybody gets the same product and they get sent out across London, England. 
And so inevitably, whoever hits the most populated corner in London, England sells the most papers. So it doesn't matter how much better of a salesperson they were. It doesn't matter how much, you know, the product was still the newspaper. It's like they were on the most populated corner. Therefore, ergo, they sold the most. Mm. There's an underlining rent to the value of that property that just cannot be extrapolated out of the equation. It, it just is always going to be there. It's worth more because of that. Oh, wow. So it came from a book that I just read uh, in January, um, Secret Secret Life of Real Estate and Banking. And it was built into this book. It was a really cool book. If you haven't read it, you really should. It's dense. It's like a textbook, but I highly recommend it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so like that, that underlining thesis of like, okay, so that's, you know, today we say location, location, location. It all about boils back down to this law of rent. And um, I just try to work that into the thesis that I, I carry to my clients and just be like, yeah, that's why we want to be in prime locations. I know it's going to cost a little more possibly or probably, and there's going to be a little less selection most likely, but you're going to get the dividends and the payoff of the, having that property in the long term just because it's, it's built in that way. Um, so how do you balance that against being able to carry those properties? Well, you, you do the best that you can within the budget that you're working with and you try to maximize to the best of the ability of the client and, and what they're, they're there. But I think ultimately, um, it's just, it's just making sure in, in that context, it's just making sure you don't make the mistake of doing, of, of ignoring that fact. Like don't make the mistake of ignoring that fact. If you can get a 300 or $400,000 property, but you're in the wrong side of town in a very small town, it's <laughs> a lot of risk built into that deal. I know it's within your budget. But there's an extreme amount of risk built into that deal. Like <laughs> right now, we're seeing it in small markets. Belleville, Quinney West, these markets that I work in are getting saturated with a lot of rental units right now that have come to market just in the last six weeks, four weeks. When you're in those marketplaces, you want to make sure you have premium product to stand out because all of a sudden, there's not the population isn't going to change overnight. It's not like we're going to have an influx of 30,000 new people to Belleville. That's not happening. So you want to make sure you have the best product on the market and, and make sure that you're, you're providing the best quality um, so that you can attract the best talent. Why is that happening right now? The uh, saturation? Combination of things. I think uh, the main thing is that the there's a lot of speculation that occurred in Belleville as far as individual units are concerned, like houses are concerned. A lot of Toronto investors and GTA investors came out and bought pre-construction bungalows on smaller lots that they believed were very cheap. Um, those units have now come to market and the, the buyer of those units was also coming from Durham. So there was a downsizer that was selling their house in Durham for 1.4 million and then buying this house for like 900. And the speculator was able to pick up that house from the builder for let's say 650, 500, 700, anywhere in between. So there was a spread there. So like, oh, this is a great market. So they bought these, these pre-constructions. Well, because of the pullback in Oshawa or because of the reduction in value in Oshawa, those people are now having to sell at like 1.1, maybe 1.2 million and then get into a new mortgage. If, well, if they buy cash, they're buying in full cash at like 700, 800,000. That's a lot of cash to come out of your pocket at right now. And the spread isn't really a lot. Um, and if they have to take a mortgage, they're taking a mortgage at 6%. And so that buyer has just chosen to sit put for now, right? They're just not migrating back into the area at the same volume as they were 
12 months ago, 15 months ago. And so those speculators are now forced to bring units to, to rent. They have to, they have to wait, wait this out a little. So they're bringing brand new construction to rent. So there's a lot of brand new builds that are renting full houses, nice, beautiful homes. Cause they just wanted to flip these to the Durham downsizers. Yeah. And those guys have pulled back a little bit. Uh, interesting. Yeah, so I think uh, as markets are cyclical, there's there's a season to everything. The season will pass as well, but for the time being, in the next you know six to eight weeks, maybe longer, there's just a glut of units on the market right now that you know isn't the end of the world. There's still people renting every day, and and units are being filled. It's just you have to be hedged out and ready for that. So, do you have a preference for single family homes that are older with more character that you can do more with, as opposed to these newer? pre-construction homes that are coming on market? Like if you had a buyer and they just wanted to buy something in Belleville, what type of property would it be? I, I know you the, like the single family, but yeah, then. I think the newer properties are good. They just have to make sense numbers wise, right? Like those, that's where it gets tight, right? Like if you're buying a new build at 800,000, 900,000 in, in Belleville, let's just say the pushback that I typically run into is, well, that 800, 900,000 goes a long way in Hamilton. So why would I do that? Well, I get it. That makes a lot of sense. So until that number comes down back to where it was when the speculator bought, which is the five or 600 range, it, it may not make sense, even though it's a nice house, brand new, nothing to worry about. How do they still have the really prices high. that high? Like, how are they even still trying to attempt prices that high? Now you're asking me to, to uh, assess the diagnose the mind of a seller. I don't know. I think, I, I think sometimes people are committed to the price because, um, that's what makes sense for them to exit without taking a loss. Sometimes you have people that are um, believe that their their house is worth that, and therefore that's what they're going to sell for. And so they just haven't conformed to the and reality or, of the market. Yeah, and or like somebody else. What always happens, I think, sometimes is like somebody does sell for that price, and then like the, the, the dream stays alive, right? <laughs> like somebody actually does get that price. You know, the conversation always with sellers has to then be, yeah, but that buyer's now out of the market. Like, are there more of them? Um, if there's more of them, then yeah, that's all fine. But I think everybody's kind of just going through it, it's, it's and maybe like a realtor did them dirty and overbid on the place. I don't know. It, yeah. It's just volatility. It's hard to, to know in these markets. It's very choppy. Hmm. So like it, it's, it's, it's hard to be right a hundred percent of the time anymore because ever, but uh, very hard to be right a hundred percent of the time right now, because who knows why there's a lot of variables as to why these things aren't going to work this way in March and May, March through May, we were seeing a lot more activity our way prices were moving. We were in multiple offers. I was in multiple offers in Belleville, which is shocking to a lot of people. And that's at lower price points, 500 and under. But at the same time, those are now gone within a matter of weeks, just because of the last rate increase. So, so it's just very turbulent right now. It's going to be choppy and, and knowing why things happen is strange. But um, for the most part, there's just a lot of inventory on the market. And, and therefore, um, I'm staying my focus into Kingston because it's hedged better with a bigger population base and a, and a larger driver of tenants with this university being there. I feel that it's safer um, for, for investors to look at. And there are deals to be had. There's prices that are down and it's, there's deals to be had. We're doing deals in that marketplace right now that are really appealing and interesting and um, worth looking at. So it's just a matter of, of kind of just Position. You're not finding the same saturation in the Kingston market? I think it's a different market altogether just because of the size of it, because of the student base that's flowing in and out and flowing in and out. So you said the population of Kingston was 140? 160, yeah. Is that including the 25,000 student population or no? Because they're just temporary. Temporary. I, I, I'm not on the city uh, 
yeah, he's, statistics, but I would say that there's just that population exists within Kingston. Yeah, got it. So it's still a strong base. Just a strong and then 25,000, like that's a decent size for a school. It's Queens, man. It's yeah. Queens. I don't know. I wasn't smart enough to get in. I don't know. If, I mean, you look like a smart guy. I, <laughs> I couldn't get in. You know, like it's just one of those things where it's a good school. And if you're going to the school and you're in that, they're legacy people. Um, yeah. Can you explain that? You mentioned that in our team meeting just now, the legacy aspect of it. Well, when you meet people who go to Queens, there is a group of people that go to Queens that are very well, um, you know, well connected into a, a family that has probably also gone to Queens. It's, 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 um, it's something to be proud of. It's like a family rite of passage. I think so. Yeah. You know, I think so. And I've spoken to people that have done this and that are legacy students. There's, there's a pride in it. Like they've got to, they've got to perform and they've got to live up to this name and they've got to live up to what they've been, you know, provided like this, this legacy they've been blessed with. And so that they're living up to it and they're doing their best to do that. And so there's just a different quality about it than maybe somebody who, you know, just goes to university and so really I, I went seriously. to the University of Guelph Humber. It's like a little campus that's attached to Humber College in um, Rexdale. Okay. So in an Etobicoke area. And uh, there's just like, it's 10 years old or 15 years old. I don't know. And it's like, it's a commuter school. Like everyone was still living at home in the GTA. A lot of Woodbridge kids and Brantford right. kids. And there's just no culture or history to it. It's like you went and the appeal of that school is you get a diploma from Humber and a university degree from University of Guelph. So it was cool. Four years, you bang it out, you move on. You never think about it again. Right. Your kids don't want to go there. Uh, and I would argue like Queens, like you're saying, is like that, a legacy school where it runs in the family. Yeah. Uh, McMaster. Yeah. Western yeah. is a big one. Like I went to a friend's wedding and they were Western students they had met. And it was just all these Western vibes happening through the wedding and, you know, in the speeches, they were talking about how important Western was and, yeah. and the families are there. I'm like, oh my God, this is like a whole, it's like a cult. Like it's like a Western cult. Like <laughs> it's, I get it. Like I never had that experience, but Mustangs, it, right? That's the Mustangs. It's yeah. Like must go Mustangs. And it's pack. like, there's flags in the house. Like yeah. it's, it's very interesting. Some schools have that and some don't. And a lot of it just cause those schools haven't been around long enough. Probably. Yeah, yeah probably. I think I, <laughs> I, I just think there's just something cachet about that, right? Like there is something about that market. So there are going to be students that go into that area. There are going to be students that are moving into the, the same school you're going to. And as an investor, do you care if there's a big flux of students going to Guelph Humber or if they're going into Queens? I don't know. I know a lot of them that don't like they're, they're all paying rent. So who cares? But at the same time, I think from a perspective of just, again, looking for prime prime real estate, prime things. Uh, I, uh, I just think it's, it is a factor. I think it's something that should be considered. I think it's something that works into it. Um, there's a, there's a, uh, pride that comes along with that. Now in saying that the queen's homecoming is legendary for, for what it does to the city, you know, but, um, but yeah, there is just, there's a certain pride about it all. So what type of project, what type of homes, projects do you like in Kingston? You said you can find some great deals right now. Yeah. So we're tending to look at two different neighborhoods or two different areas. One is very close to the university and within like a kilometer and a half, 202 kilometers away from the school. And then the others are kind of more out to the Western suburbs of Kingston. And they're, they're, they're prototypical bungalows that you've seen a hundred times before in every other market, 80, 60, 70 built bungalows, right? They're always the same general type of property. Um, but I think you have to take it. A, a different approach to both. Um, 
the Queens students tend not to be trying to go out to the suburbs and live there at all. So it's a different tenant base when you go out that way. Um, so specifically around the university, you know, a lot of these houses are old Victorians or big old houses like you would see in every other kind of major old city. Um, I think the opportunity there is in getting these houses and kind of chopping them up into three units with additions built off the back tends to be the easiest format of it. Um, you can do it with garden suites, but it gets a little tricky. The lots are limiting on some of them. So, but additions are always an opportunity and a possibility. Um, but chopping them up into three units allows you to diversify your tenant profile. You can also get some young professionals that are still trying to live kind of in the hedge of they've like recently grad students or grad students themselves. And I think that that higher quality of student tends to want to live not so much in a frat house, but in a isolated area, kind of modern condo live like lifestyle, like where yeah. it's two bedrooms, more of their bedrooms. own apartment. Yeah. yeah. And so Kingston, as I mentioned before, Kingston's put in a, uh, a cap essentially on eight bedrooms per property. Okay, so it means that in time, you know, a lot of people are seeing this as a negative um, because it eliminates how many bedrooms you can stuff into these houses for student rentals. I think that in time, what you're going to find is that there's going to be a supply demand issue that occurs. Um, and therefore, who has the best layout of these eight bedrooms may win the day. And that property may be valued more than somebody else who doesn't have that well of a layout. So I think looking at these properties and starting to look at how can we build out these additions? Um, how do we add the units? How do we get, do we get three, three, two? Do we do it in a, you know, like how, what format makes sense? And based on what the, the property can provide, makes that direction kind of go the right way. Um, what is it about these Victorian homes that it makes it seem easy to chop up? They're huge. It's, it's just the size like what yeah they're grander like they're they're they they had parlors and they had um they had the intention of being a a granular grand grand home and so multi-generational I, yeah i think so well i think so it's funny like i don't even know if multi-generational living maybe it was more like you know um maids and people that had to live in the house at the same time as the people who owned the house you know you had these kind of service oriented people kind of living in, in the same home. And so maybe that's, you know, you see attics and stuff like that. But, um, I think ultimately, uh, when I joke with people, it's like, if you ever told the person who originally built this house in 1930, that it was going to be chopped up to 11 bedrooms and rented to 20 year olds, they probably would have burned the house down themselves. Yeah. They're rolling in the grid. They're right? rolling in the for grid. sure. And so remembering and reminding people like you're a caretaker for this property, like you're, you're eventually going to be not the owner of this property either right yeah. and so um bringing the highest and best use to this property makes their fancy dining room just now two bedrooms with like you know jammed. yeah posters of rappers and singers yeah, on the wall that's right. like i find it so funny when you walk into these houses and they're like these beautiful elegant marble fireplaces in the parlor that are like boarded up and closed off because they're just ugly and i can't put anything in there it's yeah. so funny um but yeah i think that uh, ultimately you know you're a caretaker and you're you're not going to hold this property you know when you die so you you need to conform it and construct it in a way that makes a lot of sense going forward and i think there's an opportunity in doing that so what do the numbers look like on this type of property uh, you can get rents into the 800 through you know even as high as a thousand dollars a room depending on what you're offering and the luxury that you're providing and the location right um 
up to eight rooms and then what about adding all the rooms. units and chopping the chopping the house up i think that when you get into the chopping of the house up i think that there's a there's an added value built into that because you're no longer a single family home that's being comped out to single family homes so if you go to a refer um, refi down the line they're not going to be looking at you in the same way as a lot of student rentals where it's like yeah i can see your rent but they're all on the same lease or some version of your lease structure and uh this is really just a single family house that's really not that safe right now the way you're running it or it's not really conducive to what we're comping out to so by chopping them up into like a triplex format you've now elevated this property which makes it really easy for banks and lenders to refi it makes it really easy to understand your rents and understand your income it makes it really easy to be like yeah you stand out amongst this village of properties you look different you you have different features to you um and so, is it also now more based off the income of the property with yeah the multiple like, units? like everything changes right like it, it changes how lenders and how people are looking at your property long term and so i think when you can kind of wrap your head around that it makes sense to put the money into the property it's not going to be like these houses have been here for almost 100 years some of them you're not going to see that house drop to zero like it's not going to zero. So you you by making these improvements, you're you're not burning money away. You're not doing something that you're not. We're not adding hot tubs into the you know on the roof. Yeah, we're we're putting things into here that have value and hold value. Um, one would imagine that that value is going to go further into the future as value of everything goes up in time with money printing. Um, and looking at these houses. Uh, you know, there's been a significant pullback. These houses last year in the peak were selling at a million three, million four, million five, some of them. And now they're down into the eight, nine hundreds, seven hundreds. So you're essentially just going to take the equity that's pulled back and reinvest it back into these improvements um, and try to take advantage and recreate what's already there and, and improve it so that going forward, the value is easy to unlock. These Victorian homes, can you run into issues just with how old they are? Of course, of course. They've got problems. There's there's no way around it. It goes back to what we were saying earlier, right? Like, this isn't easy. <laughs> this isn't going to be, um, you know, for the faint of heart, right? So if you're an investor who wants, you know, no thought process, this isn't really for you. Um, but I think that uh, for those that are interested and willing and, and can see that there's there's gold on the other side of that hill um it's worth exploring and there's a solution look it's construction there's always a solution it's just time and money right so if you're willing to solve those problems with time and money then you'll be okay um but i think ultimately you got to get in there you got to figure it out and you got to make sure now don't you know i say that I've steered people away from a lot of Victorian homes because this is too much time or this is too much money. So there goes back to your boots on the ground, having an experienced person walk around with you and, and highlight like, that's going to be a problem. Like we're going to have a big problem here. Yeah. It's so huge. Um, so student rentals, what if an investor comes up to you and just wants something simple? They don't want to chop up an old Victorian home into the three units, but they're just looking for something that could cash flow or break even just a long-term hold. What are you kind of steering them towards or, or recommending? I think it's just a matter of getting the best lot that you can get and and getting to that duplex, triplex of, of a bungalow, essentially. It's probably the easiest way, right? Uh, cash flow cash flow is an equation to a degree right like if i put more capital in i can definitely make a cash flow if i buy it in cash i can make a cash flow every month that's not hard it's like yeah but is there a better use of my capital tends to be the next question right so mm -hmm. for use of capital i would i would be looking at properties that are going to hold value 
properties that are going to be able to make sense for you in the interim buying turnkey duplexes or turnkey triplexes or any of those things that you can get your hands on always probably the best version the downside to that is that you may have to inherit some tenants that's that's usually there's there's um there's always a a, a give and a take and you're going to have to make some kind of some kind of give to, to make the numbers make sense or to make the deal make sense mm -hmm. so if you don't want to do the work and you don't want to improve it and you don't want to change it then you don't get the brand new tenants typically at market rent with everything finished and brand new with all the renovations done so you don't have to worry about fixing anything that you got to pick which lane you want to be in as far as so so you'd like kingston right now and it's more of a down market but yeah. Belleville, Qu Quincy West, I think you mentioned. Yeah, so like Trenton, for anybody who's out there, Quincy West, like what is that? It, it's a big area, but just Trenton, military base. Okay, military base. What are the strategies there? Are you still helping people out in those regions? Still doing it, just being very picky when we're talking to people in there. I've got clients in there right now that we're renovating from property from last year that is coming through and these units are coming to market. It's fine. Like we're, we're making numbers work and we're making it all make sense that the rents are strong you're still renting top floors of bungalows for 2300 2400 plus utilities you're still getting 2000 1900 in the basements you're getting strong numbers what would the purchase price be on something getting those numbers right now we were you know towards the end of last year we were picking up around 430 to 470 and now they're up around 500 five and change oh wow um, and then so that's after the conversion like all no no that's your that's your buy-in and then you've got to convert so then you got to yeah. put your 100 grand in 120 grand into convert it and then you're out the other side so call it six six and change so wow but 23 up and and you said 19 down yeah that's another reason why there's a lot of saturation <laughs> the rents were strong yeah. yeah 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 so so i think that there's still uh, opportunities in those marketplaces there's still opportunities but i am always very very picky going in there so i'm now in that scenario i'm getting like uber uber picky like you better have something in this property that i can't find again or that's very difficult for me to find what would an example of that be? Highlight features. Being on one of those prominent neighborhood streets on the east side, like Old East Hill and Belleville has got a, a lot of prominent old Victorian homes with very, very large lots that are, you know, big, big homes, like 2,900 to 3,100, 3,500. These are, and they're 100 year old homes. So that's why I know the square footage doesn't seem impressive, but when the house is 100 years old, it can be pretty big in a prominent area close to downtown and transit and all of your stuff, right? So if that's coming up for grabs and there's a way to kind of turn those into three and four unit properties, that's very appealing. If it's already been done and it's already converted into a three or four unit property, that's very appealing. Um, if it's right on the waterfront or if it's close to waterfront, that might be appealing. Um, but there's just gotta be something about it that makes it more than just it's Price. Mm -hmm. In these communities, like what are people doing for work? What are their jobs? Kingston's a bigger community. Like when you have a like more understandable hundred thousand yeah. plus, like it's it's almost it's self circulating thing. Like there's some bigger industries, sure, but then there's you know people need gas, they need food. Like there's just enough jobs going around. Yeah. What about so these Belleville? These Belleville's driver is Procter and Gamble. Um, it's also got a new Amazon distribution center opening. It's located pretty much directly in between Kingston and Toronto. So you have this benefit of being right on the 401 trunk line. There's not a lot of things as far as cities go on that 401 line that make a lot of sense, right? So um, people don't really consider, but if you're a transport truck driver and you're going from Montreal to Toronto, there are drivers that make that entire drive back and forth, but there are also drivers that stop in the middle. 
and they drop their 40 foot truck, 40 foot trailer, pick up another trailer from a guy who came from Quebec and the two of them turn back around and go back their separate ways. Mm-hmm. So there's transit lines like of, of infrastructure that are going back and forth. That's the reason Amazon's starting to come out this way is just because its proximity to those two major markets is very close. You're the halfway point for both of those major markets, right? Um, of Every, Ottawa. Everybody wants that two-day shipping. Yeah, Ottawa and Toronto. Like you, you, You're right in the middle of, of what's actually now becoming the expansion of Durham and the expansion of ottawa in down to kemptville and into those arm prior and those areas are starting to get bigger and so by amazon taking advantage of cheaper industrial prices they're locking in for the next 40 50 years with a very solid infrastructure move the other thing that's always a good consideration when talking about places like belleville you should keep in mind like if you try to find industrial commercial space i was just at a golf event last week with a guy who has a sheet metal company so he's been in, you know, by the airport in Toronto here, uh, Mississauga way. He's been there for like 35 years. And so he's got 10,000 square feet. He's taken another 7,000. He's got like 17,000 square feet of good commercial space to do his, his sheet metal business. Landlord comes to him and tells him there's a rent increase coming. That's massive because he's been not paying market rents for all these years. Now's the time he's going to pay. Well, I'm going to go buy my own building then. But you turn around and there's no buildings to buy. And if you do have to buy them, they're like 9 million, 10 million. They're excessive. It's a lot of capital out of pocket and things just don't make sense. Try finding rental space in that commercial industrial. You're paying 35 to $55 a, a square foot, right? For those same rentals. In Belleville, we're doing it for 14 to 20. Oh, and we're wow. building a million and a half square feet. So there's an opportunity just in that one main thing now for that guy's business doesn't make sense he's not going to leave his commercial business that he's built there with all of his connections but for some businesses that are bigger and larger and can handle it bringing um or bringing buildings or or consuming buildings in belleville might make sense for you because you're exposing yourself to new markets this way so there are jobs coming that way um, but right now it's Procter & Gamble, it's manufacturing, it's the Trenton military base, the largest air base in Canada. It's located in Trenton. There's a significant amount of jobs that come from that military base. And then all the people that service that base and kind of work in and around that base. So Does the military provide housing or is They it- do. They do. They, they And again, they're short of housing, so they, they're building more. There's a wait list to get into the military housing. Um People forget, I don't know if they forget or they just don't know, but you know, military gets placements every two years. So you get orders and you get sent to a new place. Uh, that's just occurred um, in May and June. And so those placements tend to be big tick ups to both supply, people sell because they gotta go in and then demand because they bring them into place and they gotta find somewhere to live in very short periods of time. So there is a community, like a market to that. I wouldn't push all my chips on the military base because they were, incentives for them to live somewhere else and there's some you know these guys don't make these people they're not guys but these people don't make a little little bit of money they make good money so if you can buy the house they can probably buy it too they're just um and some of the best flippers i've seen in that area are are military guys they buy they know they're here for two years they improve while they live there and they sell it and move out and go to their next place so oh smart yeah (laughs) interesting so you did a lot of flipping yourself um you mentioned before we started recording short-term rentals it was that specifically in prince edward county you were doing a lot of that yeah yeah so so short-term rentals in the county kind of became a big thing they they've um for the last three years over covid they just exploded you know um 
they became so large. I think at, at one point, right before COVID 2019, 2020, I was on AirDNA and it was like, there's like 1300 uh, Airbnbs in a very, very small community. Like wow. there's not a lot of houses, you know, if there's 10 or 15,000 houses, I'd be surprised, right? So it's, it was a big chunk of the population was being used as Airbnbs. And at the time, you know, 2017, I was using AirDNA and you couldn't even find Prince Edward County on AirDNA. I had to put in a special request to get the data because I couldn't just search it and find it, yeah. right? Now it's this massive uh, hotspot for Airbnbs and there's tons of data coming out of there and there's property management companies everywhere. And so, that, so Toronto has flowed in and overfilled this marketplace and it's done well. I think there are hurting right now. I think all Airbnbs are hurting this in this season of kind of you know, reduced, um, spending and just traveling is a little easier now. So, but during COVID it really much exploded. So we had an Airbnb that we converted in the town of Wellington. Uh, it did fairly well. Um, but, uh, again, you know, market peaked out and kind of went in and partnerships kind of go their own ways. And so we moved off the property for probably more of what you were saying, just to be, you know, into a different place. Um, and it did really well. And so in looking at Airbnb properties, the hedge that I would say is that you have to always consider that in pretty much every market in Ontario, other than a few, you're looking at 120 days to 140 days of rental time. It's not an all year rent. Right? So Airbnbs in the county in November, December are really not that in demand. So you have to kind of make your numbers work based on those shortened rental periods. Is that based off both three season and four season homes? Would you say? I just Yeah, I think it's just in general. Like there's just not as many things to like. So if I look at Airbnb properties right now for my like for myself, if I'm looking for an Airbnb property, I, I tend to be looking towards Mont Tremblant way. Right. Just because it's a, it's a true four season market. Collingwood gets the same benefit mm -hmm. like it's a true four season market. There's golfing, there's bike riding, there's water. There's a lot of things that can happen when I go these places in the county it's like why are you there I'm there for the vineyards I'm there for the good time I'm there for the sunsets I'm there for the, the 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 biking like bike riding like there's a lot of those type of things there's a little bit of seasonal stuff in there but they tend to be for the locals so like snowmobiling and things like that that's usually what the local guys are doing hunting is local guys like nobody's coming there for that mm -hmm. right so down down seasons because of the winter just in general you can have the best house there just probably not very you know, active mm. in November. Yeah, I wanted January. to ask you about uh, Montreal and Quebec, actually. Have you looked out that a ways? You, you mentioned So it's Trump on my law. list. Yeah, it's on my list. It's actually part of my, you know, vision board of things to have. I have this this vision of, of figuring out a property either, you know, uh, just outside of Mont Tremblant in some areas. There's a Cascades right around Rodden, which is a really cool area. It's absolutely gorgeous around Montreal. Yeah. And then the city just has so much culture. Yeah. Like it's a great spot. The only thing that I don't, and I, it's still on my list, but the things I don't know is just because I don't do deals in Quebec and deals in Quebec are different. Right. And so notaries and things like that are different, but yeah. So my vision there is, is, um, picking up land in that general area, um, from raw and bringing services in and looking at implementing some version of a prefab or, or preset home on a pad uh, that can be created into a cabin and, and it's a useful uh, place for my family and us to use during Christmases and, and winter breaks. And then it rents 
and sustains itself for the remainder of the year to kind of pay itself off. So that's definitely on my my vision boards of of where I'm going and properties I want to add. At this stage of your investing journey, are you now focusing on lifestyle investments, uh, improving your life as opposed to just trying to make more money, build more wealth? Are you trying well, to balance I the think, two? I think I'm putting, when it comes to make more money, build more wealth, I've learned the lesson to put more time and energy into perfecting my business. Um, I want to put a lot more of my energy into that. I want to be better at what I do, and I want that to generate a lot of that wealth to come. I think protecting wealth in real estate is 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 essential, but I think as far as what I'm looking at is in real estate in this area, it's it's very much now lifestyle driven. I'm kind of looking at those properties, like how do they implement into my life and how do they work? I, I have a commercial property in the Prince Edward County area um, that's right at the gates of the county. So as you come off the 401, like you drive right by my building, like there's, there's really nothing else to look at but my building. And so um, we've put a, f- I think I just telling you this, we put two food trucks in the front this year. We've re-rented it. I had a business running out of there that we, we stopped doing in December and um, we had this building and we didn't know what to do with it. So we've kept this piece of it for my wife's design company. And uh, then we've chopped up the rest of the building and rented it out to different businesses. And then we've put these um, food trucks directly, two food trucks, a Mexican truck and a burger truck right in the front in the parking lot. Just doing really well. They've, they've actually done really, really well. So are these companies you hired, like food truck? Yeah, we just rent pre- their tenants. Yeah, their tenants that are renting space and running their businesses. And um, How did that, do you just advertise to them? Like, do you contact them? Like, how do you even get the food goes trucks? goes back to, the, to my other statement of, of God giving you what you need when you need it. So I was in this place. Uh, we closed down our business in December um, just because of a contractual difference. And uh, I made the cardinal error. Did I really? I did. <laughs> the cardinal error. Um, we were in this uh, place where we had shut down the business. And uh, we had shut down the business and we were looking at this property and we were starting to figure out how to use this property better. It's a big building and it's in a great location and we have no intentions of getting rid of it. So how do we use this business and, and kind of make this work, this building and make it work? And so we chopped the building all up. Um, we rented it out to different people and different businesses and then we've put it back up on the market and rented it that way. And so it's done really well. It's, it's a fun way and creative real estate and something worth it. The upper part of my building, I think eventually in the next year or two, I'm going to try to convert into a residential space and uh, use it as a, a means of Airbnbs or, or stay setups, but yeah. And there's enough people working there to, to pay the food trucks enough money to make it worth it for them? Food trucks do well in the, in the summer season. They do really, really well. Oh, wow. Really well. Is it also because it's off the 401? You're getting a bit of traffic from that? Everybody has to drive by our building to get into the county if they're coming from Toronto. So if they go through Belleville, they don't. But where we are off of Willer Road you end up having to go right past my building. So they've put uh, a traffic ticker on the t- on like in front of my building a couple of years ago for some development projects that were going on. And for like three weeks in a row, they kept coming back and it kept rolling over to zero again. And I just kept like flipping over and they're like, well, this can't be right. And, but it was right. There was just traffic constantly going by. And in the middle of COVID, when you couldn't go anywhere, but you could go to the county, we would have lineups at our building, like from the highway all the way down into the swing bridge that turns. And it was just massive, massive amounts of traffic. So yeah, it does really well as far as traffic goes. It's it's one of those properties that you have to drive by to get to it. Yeah. Can you talk about the business and working with Scott McGilvery? 
Yeah. So we, my wife and I, during right before COVID, when we moved out there, we did the Airbnb conversion and we flipped the property in Wellington. Uh, we had looked around and noticed that there weren't, you know, there wasn't a ton of people doing that business of countertops and kitchens and things like that, doing that business. So we went back and we made an agreement with a company out of Markham and we had brought, um, their products and their services to the county. That's why we got the building in the first place. It was right there. So we started um, a countertop company and uh, it went really well in 2019. COVID kind of just hit. We knew people from Toronto were coming and they all just kind of crashed over all at once. And as a result of that, we did, you know, about 700, almost 800 countertops in three years which kept us really, really busy and really moving. And around 2019, end of 2019, 2020, um, Scott McGilvery was doing the vacation house rules. He had just started and uh, the show, and there were three or four properties in Prince Edward County that were being highlighted on the show. And so they were looking for businesses to help them. We ended up helping them for the first two. Uh, they went really well. And so they just made us the countertop company for the rest of the show. So we did 12 episodes or so in the first season, and then we did the second season. And then by the third season, we were like, okay, it's a lot, it's a lot of work. So we're gonna. So what's that experience like? Like you're, you're being filmed, like you're in the episodes. Yeah. So you... the, the harder part is coordinating all of their projects during COVID, which was the, the hardest part, um, because they're, they had projects all over the place and, uh, men like controlling our crews and kind of getting them all out. And then, you know, as a payoff, I guess you could say, or just a means of making this equal for both parties. They, they do episodes where they shoot in the building. So first season we do it at the warehouse in Markham and in the second season, uh, episode five or six or something like that, they do it in our actual shop. And so McGilvery, um, the designer that was with him, uh, Deborah, I believe she brings the clients in and they walk through the property and we look through it all and we, so you're sure. chatting with them and you're getting some footage, some showtime. Yeah. Yeah. Crew was in there for like four, four or five hours at our shop shooting. How scripted are these HGTV shows? Like, are they telling you what to say? Or They are not telling me what to say, but the people that are like Deborah and them have a script and they're very, the, the crews, I, my hat's off to them. I didn't realize how much a crew works on these things and how much they, they're, they're very much involved and they make the whole thing make sense. Cause when you're in it, filming it, you're like, how is this a show? <laughs> like, where's, how does a show come out of this? But they are magicians and when they're done, there's a show out of it. So, so the clients on there, they're scripted as well? No, no, they're real people. They're just, they're just going into it and kind of just going with it. And I think that's why sometimes it can feel clunky, I think, as like a viewer watching, not necessarily like McGilvery shows, but like a, as a consumer of those type of shows. Um, you can see that a lot of it gets clunky just because people aren't actors and they don't know what they're doing. And so that's probably the most real thing, but, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a process. They're very good at what they do. The designers are really good at what they do. They come in with kind of a, an overall vision of what they're trying to create. And then we match products to match what they're doing. Um, you deliver the product. I think the biggest thing is like the misconception is just the flow is out of order. And again, we were doing it during COVID, which made it like 10 times harder. Right. Mm -hmm. And I remember we were so pumped about being on the show for the first season and we had done all of this like prep and build up and marketing. And then it comes out, I never forget, it was like April of 2020 and March of 2020 is COVID. And so you've built up all of this stuff mm -hmm. and then you're, they're launching a show in a lockdown. 
which is good for ratings, but not so good when you live in the county and people are trying to make sure that people aren't coming to Airbnbs during COVID. Yeah. So you got caught. We kind of got caught in the middle of this like thing, like, you know, you're like contributing. The, like the cultural war that's yeah, going on. Because you've got local people like, stay away, stay out of our community, Torontonians. And you've got, you know, a show where you're highlighting Airbnbs. and So you also mentioned in our meeting that now there's this clash happening between I think Torontonians it's a who move there, yeah, the locals. Yeah. So would you recommend kind of not doing a short-term rental there right now? I think you just have to be cautious. I think you just have to be aware. There's lots of short-term opportunities there. I think in the last three or four months, you're seeing way more houses coming up that are for sale, that are beautiful homes, that are saying they're activate STAs. But uh, you have to just watch and make sure you're understanding the rules. There's new bylaws in place. There's there's definitely rules in place to owning a, a short-term rental in the county. Um, they've not made it easier to manu- to operate one of these. They've made it more difficult and more expensive. And I think that for some people, they're vanity projects. Like they're just vanity buys and they really don't care. They just want to own something there and use it just like I want to do in, in Mount Tremblant. Like I just want to own something there and kind of make it work. There's people that are doing that for sure. But if you're coming in as an investor and you're kind of like, this thing's a cash cow, I mean, just be very careful. Run your numbers. Be sure you're sure of that because it's a very condensed period of time. Mm-hmm. And when markets soften like they are, it, it's tough. Okay. So you mentioned your overall thesis, but do you have a message to put out to investors, maybe in the GTA, Golden Horseshoe area, other areas of Southern Ontario that just don't know these markets, the east side or north of Lake Ontario, whatever you want to call it, where you are, Kingston, Belleville, these areas, what's your message to get out there about these markets? When I got married to my wife, who was from Vaughan and her father, my father-in-law, who's always been from North York and Vaughan, never left that area, very much a Don Bosco guy, if you know, you know. <laughs> and he's just one of those guys that's always been around. And at, that, at my wedding 15, 16 years ago, I stood up and said, at the end of the day, it's East End boys and West End girls. And it was kind of like the punchline of the wedding speech because, you know, don't knock us, don't, don't count us out, you know? <laughs> and I think that that'll always be the way. West is always built first. I give it to you. I will allow you to to win that victory. <laughs> you know, the West always be, gets built first, but the East will always be the only way left to go. You can only go East. You're running out of space West. You're getting condensed West. There is not too many areas that can be developed um, anymore. And the East is raw and just waiting for you. And the 401 uh, track line is there. The 407 touches all the way to the 35115. The 416 comes down and touches all the way up to Ottawa. There is a chunk of land that is coming and the developers are bought. They have bought for the next 20 to 30 years all around that area. They are coming. If you are if you are a forward thinking person, if you are a creative thinking person, you're going to look at that marketplace and you're going to see it as the future. They doubted Oshawa and they doubted Clarington 10 years ago. And these markets have exploded and there is only one way left to go, which is East. So don't count it out. Keep looking at it. And uh, if you need it and you want an opinion, you should uh, reach out, call us. 
see if we can help you. Yeah. So how can someone reach out to you? I think Instagram would be always the best. We've got some links that we can put in, I think is what you usually do. Yeah. We'll put them in. The and, show. um, by all means reach out and, and it, reach out to the team. If you're a rockstar member, reach out and say, uh, that goofy guy that was on there talking about Kingston, what is he about? And where, how do I get a hold of him? By all accounts, we'll be there. The your life, your terms event will definitely be there at that. And you can come and find me and uh, we can talk about that in person and then set up, um, discovery calls. We're, we're always booking calls and setting up a system. So come and check us out. Yeah. I should mention the October, your life, your terms event. Uh, we're excited for this one. This is the most excited we've ever been for an event. We've got some huge speakers. Tom's told me I can talk about it on the podcast, but I can't mention specifics just yet. That's all coming soon. That's going to be a kick-ass event. You're probably going to hear about it. I'm sure leading up to it, if you're on our email list, um, I'll be talking about it on the podcast too, I'm sure. In fairness to just cover myself so that Tom doesn't beat me up, I just meant any Your Life, Your Terms event. So I wasn't trying to crack the story. No, no, this is great. <laughs> this is great. I wanted to talk about it because I'm excited. Like Good the level of, of speakers and the quality of information and some big announcements we're going to make there. We're excited for this one, cool. especially in October. So I'm glad you mentioned it. And then before we wrap, one, how did you find out about Rockstar and kind of join our team here and and work your way in? You know, Oakville is a far away away from uh, the East End boys, as you would put <laughs> Yeah. I think the reputation of Tom and Nick is, is very, very large. I think that I've always known about these two crazy guys that are marketing like crazy out in the end with a brokerage name that is just stop you in your tracks. <laughs> um, and then I've also had the privilege of working with Erwin Zito and, and a lot of that team and, and coming in the door with a, some really, really, really great people that are very high quality. This marketplace of, of rockstar brokerage demands quality. And I think that that's appealing to me to come in and work with people of such high quality and caliber. Um, and I think that that's where I wanted to be. I think that when I look around, I've been in a bunch of different real estate brokerages in my time and they're all, you know, great for their own personal reasons. Um, this one here was very much in the niche that I was trying to expand in, had good quality people in there and just something I could build off of. And so I'm really excited to be part of the team. I've been here since January of last year and, you know, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. So, yeah. So for those that don't know, Steve is our boots on the ground in the East end, or I still don't know what you call it. Cause I just think of Durham region as the East end. Yeah. So let's just call it the East side. We'll say anything East of Durham, we can take care of for you. Yeah. So, you know, th there's limited market exposures, but if you're interested and you want to know what it's all about, we'll be happy to show you around. And, and we do tours and walk people through one-on-ones and kind of take them through the city and show them what's there. You've never been by all means, we'll show you around and make sure you get a good vibe. Okay. So yeah, we'll leave your contact information and stuff in the show notes and you can also reach out to rockstar if, if you want to, we can connect you. I'm sure you're okay with that. Yeah. And, uh, just at the end of your investing journey, or it's not the end, but at the end of this, you know something I don't know. At the end of this podcast, or wife, yeah. <laughs> what um, what are your big takeaways from you know twenty fifteen years of investing? It seems like you're making some lifestyle decisions. What, what's the journey been like? If you could just sum it up, I would say what I would tell my kids, which is life is a journey of lessons and learning. You must keep going. There is no turning back and this too shall pass and everything will be fine, but you must keep going. And if you, if you take anything away from everything you do, which is just learn a lesson, just take something with it, stash it away. You'll use it again. There's something in everything. I'm eternally optimistic. I think that there's always something worth fighting for here. Um, I think that the, the 
ability to learn a skill or learn a talent will separate you as time goes on. And so just keep pushing and learning those skills and adding to your toolbox. Somebody said that to me once and I, I, I can't remember who it was, but just always add a new tool to your toolbox. If you're doing that, you're, you're progressing, you're not losing, you're winning. And so, yeah, just really make sure you keep doing that. And, and just you two, this too shall pass. This is, this is a market where everybody wants to talk about doom and gloom. That's every market. Every market has ups and downs as the part of being a market. This is capitalism. This is markets. This is what they do. They're all cyclical. Calm down. We're going to be fine. We'll just rotate into the next cycle and we'll forget all about this. And three years ago, we had no idea this was coming. And looking back at it, we had no idea what was going to happen three years ago. So it, it's just part of the journey. And uh, just really make sure you work hard at getting better so that you're always ready for the next challenge. And your dreams of being an entrepreneur when you were younger, do you think real estate has achieved that for you? Yeah. I think so. I think that real estate is a real estate as a business can be done so many different ways. So find your find your niche, find your version of it, and you'll be fine. It 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 depends on where you are. If you are a high earner and a CEO of something, congrats. You've done you've done what you needed to do. That's your thing. Then in which case real estate is a protector of your wealth. If you're a young guy and you don't know where to go and you're like me and you came out and just were just trying to figure out a, a, a version, then it's got a lot of potential and upside in it as well that you can go a different path. But just understand that those two people exist in the same uh, same ethos, the same world, universe. They're both in the same thing and they both consider themselves real estate investors or operators. So That's a great point. Yeah, it can just be so many different things to so many different people. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Steve Phillips. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you so much. I hope this made sense and wasn't just too much rambling. No, nope, it was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. So thank you so much. Thank you very we'll much. We'll wrap here. Take care. A big thank you to Steve Phillips for sharing his story. It was great hearing about it and also about the market on the east side. Steve's Instagram handle is at stephenphillips.re. That's at stephenphillips.re. And if you email us at members at rockstarbrokerage.com, we can connect you to Steve by email as well. Thank you for listening and we hope to catch you on the next episode.